One of the key features of Jesus' public ministry was, of course, teaching or preaching. And uh, he did this many different ways. He was a master teacher, and so he utilized different methods. In chapter 6, we have the Beatitudes in Luke, and that would be an example of some straightforward didactic teaching, which Jesus did much of. However, sometimes he would simply use a story that illustrated a spiritual truth, and we, of course, call those parables, and this is a prime example of a parable. So as we looked at uh, verses 4 through 10, this is the parable itself. But before we read Jesus' explanation of the parable, we need to understand two things. First of all, what this parable is about. In verse 1, we see what kind of message Jesus was preaching. He was proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. This parable is about the kingdom of God. Now, it is arguable that the kingdom of God is the most important theme in all of Scripture, and it starts at the very beginning. God created man to live under his loving kingship and rulership, but man, in rebellion, sinned against God and messed up the entire world. All the results of the fall, all the pain, all the suffering, all the wickedness came from that rebellion against God's kingship. But God immediately, in Genesis chapter 2, enacted a plan where he was going to send the Messiah, his king, to bring all things back under his rulership. And so, Jesus here is speaking about him being the Messiah, God's king, who will one day set all things under God's rulership again. When Jesus was proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, it means that he was proclaiming himself as God's king, or his Messiah, and he was summoning his hearers to submit to God's rulership by submitting to him. Now, if you ask the man on the street, as I have at times, what they believe about Jesus, nine out of ten people will say that he was a good man, a good teacher, and he, they would rank him in the class of, of Buddha and Muhammad, and they would say that he was an influential teacher in history. They would not argue that he's not a historical figure. But notice that when Jesus is saying that he is God's Messiah, he is claiming something much more than the fact that he is a good teacher. Notice also that this parable is about a specific phase of God's kingdom. I want you to turn your attention to chapter, or excuse me, verse 10. When he's talking to his disciples, he says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He was not just talking about the kingdom. He was talking about a phase that was previously unknown to them or to the prophets. This is a secret phase in God's kingdom that Jesus was now disclosing through this parable. The Old Testament prophets taught that when the Messiah came, he would decisively overthrow God's enemies and establish God's rule in the whole world. Now, we would call this today the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus confirmed that that day was coming, but he also revealed that the Messiah was coming first not to defeat God's enemies and rule the world, instead to invite people to be reconciled with God and to receive forgiveness, and that Jesus, the Messiah himself, would provide that forgiveness by his life and his death on the cross. He also taught that after this first coming, there was going to be a phase in God's plan where this message, which we might call the New Testament, the New Covenant, was going to spread until all people had a chance to hear it. Only after this, Jesus would turn to decisively establish 
God's rulership over the world. And so this parable illustrates this mystery phase of the kingdom of God. And specifically, it is going to explain to us how different people respond to this message. It's not that this message is defective or that it's true for some people and not for others. This message is the message of God. It is true for everyone and is able to transform every person who hears it. The issue is that many people fail to respond properly to this life-transforming message. If you imagine that three people had a bacterial infection and a doctor gave each of these people an antibiotic and then he gave them a period of time they're supposed to take it, at the end of that time, if you had one person who fully recovered, one person who started to recover and then relapsed, and then one person who was worse off than ever, would it surprise you to find that one person took it as prescribed, one person took it and then stopped, and then one person didn't take it at all? Well, here we have God's medicine, you could say. And uh, here we have, this is the point of the parable. Many people fail to respond to God's medicine of forgiveness through Jesus because they fail to respond to his medicine properly. And so as we read Jesus' explanation of different responses to his message, I want you to think first of yourself. Which of these responses have you had in the past? Which of these responses do you have right now? Now, a lot of times in scripture, we would wish that things were a little bit clearer. We have very, very clear distinctions between justification, which is a one-time event whereby God declares us righteous with all the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and sanctification, which is progressive. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up and down. A lot of times, especially in the Gospels, we wish, so is this justification or is this sanctification? And sometimes scripture does not make it as clear. Fruitlessness in the end is damnation. But we all, I would submit, resemble these soils at different times in our sanctification. I would give you an example, for instance, Demas, a man that Paul says forsook him for the love of silver. We do not know anything else about Demas. If Demas persisted in his forsaking of Paul, God's man, and he persisted in his love of silver, then we will probably never see Demas. I also submit to you John Mark who at some point, Paul would say, resembled one of these soils, one of the disappointing soils, because he left him when the going got tough. But we find out that later, he says, bring John Mark with you because he is profitable for me in the ministry. And so I would tell you, as you think about this, don't just think of perhaps this is, these are saved, the bad soils, and these are unsaved. Um, reverse that. Uh, although in the end, if you persist in being a bad soil, then you are not saved. However, I see myself in these soils sometime. And so I want you to think about yourself and your response to not just the gospel, but also God's word. The most important question here is that how you respond is because you are not fated to respond to Jesus in a certain way. You can choose your response. Let's look at verses 11 through 15, Jesus' application. In these verses, Jesus describes four different responses to his message. One of them is good and results in a great harvest. And what is the harvest that he is speaking of here? It is the transformed life that influences many people to Christ. A harvest, a transformed life that influences many people 
to Christ. Three of these soils, these responses, are disappointing. One of them is good. Notice that Jesus describes the proper response in three different ways. I want to direct your attention to verse 15. I think this is the key to the whole passage. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones, he describes the good soil in three ways, who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Notice that he is describing the proper response in three different ways. Now, what I think this tells us is that these three proper ways of responding of good soil are going to contrast the three bad soils. And let me show you what I mean. The good soil, first of all, represents people who respond to the message, it says, in an honest and good heart. Now, this honest and good heart, the good hearts, the good-hearted people, the noble people, this does not mean that when you hear the word that you are righteous, because if you were, you wouldn't need the forgiveness that is in that word. However, it means that you are honest about your need for Jesus' message and that you are humble. I'd like to give you two examples of somebody like this that is in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verses 47, so just right before our passage, we have the woman who is known to be a great sinner, and here Jesus is giving his verdict in verse 47 of chapter 7. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, okay, she's not a righteous person, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Why was this sinful woman forgiven? Because she was a good heart. She was humble before God. I would also point to you in the same chapter of verses 8 and 9, where you have Jesus marveling about this centurion who sent to have his slave healed. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. He said, For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Verse 9. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. This was a Gentile man, and Jesus marvels at his humility. This man also was a good heart. And so if you are good soil, you are simply humble. You agree that you have rebelled against God, and you humble yourself before him. You admit that you are incompetent to direct your own life. So that when you hear this message that Jesus can forgive you and that he will become your friend and your guide through life, you respond by giving yourself to Jesus as your forgiver and your guide. Now this is the opposite of the first soil in verse 12. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Here is a person who hears this wonderful message this wonderful invitation of this mystery phase of the kingdom, that we can be reconciled to God through his Messiah. And instead, they do not humble themselves like the good soil, but because of their self-sufficiency, they refuse to admit their need for it. When you respond to it this way, the enemy, which is uh, identified here in verse 12 as the devil, comes and takes away the word from their heart 
so that they will not believe and be saved. In other words, you have a hard heart, and so the word sits there, and then Satan is going to help you out. He will give you tons of reasons why this does not apply to you. Perhaps he will introduce you to a religion that is much more amenable to your pride, where you feel like, I'm okay because I'm in this, and it kind of salves you. Uh, perhaps he introduces you to other hypocritical Christians, and uh, maybe he uh, gives you an opportunity to, to fulfill all of your selfish plans. Because when you, are, when you are successful and proud, you don't need it. And so Satan will just kind of urge that along until all of a sudden it seems totally justifiable that you reject this message. That is the hard-hearted, self-sufficient soil and is the opposite, opposite of the good soil, which is an honest and good heart. Now, there may be somebody here that this is you. You have never given the word a hearing. And first of all, I would commend you for actually coming to a place like this and listening. Keep giving it a hearing. Pick up the New Testament and begin to read. Expect resistance because remember the devil, a very real being, is trying to keep you from hearing this. However, the longer you read, the more plausible it will become to you. And so thank you for being here and listening. And the very first thing and the best thing you could do is simply admit that this categorizes you, that you have a hard heart. And perhaps you should even say to God, as so many people have, God, if you are there, show me. And that would be a good first step for you. The good soil represents people who not only humbly admit their need for Jesus' forgiveness and guidance, but they also, see verse 15, second to last phrase, they hold it fast. Now, this phrase implies that there's going to be strong pressure in your life to forsake your trust in Jesus as your guide. It doesn't mean that you're going to pass every test with flying colors. It simply means that when you are tested, you continue to trust, that you keep trusting his wisdom and his goodness, and you stay on the path that follows him. This is a person who seizes it, and they hold on to it no matter what. Now, that's the opposite of the second soil in verse 13. Those on the rocky soil, or you could say the gravel soil, where we saw earlier that uh, it, had no, it had too much irrigation, it got no water, it drained away. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, this is verse 13, receive the word with joy. Okay, there's an initial response. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, trial, hard times, they fall away. This person you could call the fickle person. It's a person who responds positively to the message initially, but they forsake trust in Jesus when the following him results in unexpected suffering. Perhaps it's that others mock you for your faith. You expected somebody to at least applaud you, perhaps, that you were, are trying to turn around your life, and instead you get only mockery and humiliation. Maybe it's that you thought, perhaps, that if you went this way, that Jesus would give you what you wanted in life, and perhaps things only get worse. Or maybe 
He calls on you to give up something that you really want. Maybe you made an initial decision to impress a girl who professed Christ, and then she drops you, and you do not have what you wanted. I don't know what it is, but it's probably that somebody hurts you or something disappoints you, and you won't let go of it, and you grow bitter. When the bitterness comes, you let go. Now, perhaps this response indicates that you never received Jesus to begin with. I've seen many people respond positively to Jesus, claim to have received him, and then a few months later completely deny him. There was a young man in this church that Dan Anderson and I spent time. We went to one last appeal to ask him to come back, and he shook his head and closed the door. This is somebody when uh, temptation came, turned away. Now, I can't see into people's hearts, but I suspect that in many cases, there was never a surrender to the will of Jesus in the first place, that they only wanted to use Jesus as a means to getting something, perhaps betterment in life. I've also seen people, though, that have believed in Jesus and surrendered to Jesus, and then in a time of hardship in their life, it's almost as if they go on strike, where they stop coming, they stop communicating, they stop reading, they grow hard and bitter, but then they persevere, and God keeps them, and you see them once again. I believe this is perfectly possible to happen for a Christian. There may be somebody here that this is your current response, where it is a miracle, a small miracle, that you are sitting here today because you have no desire. You don't know why you came. But if this is your current response to Jesus, you don't have to stay here. At this time, you can choose today to forgive the people who hurt you and start trusting that Jesus knows what to do with your life. You can agree that he didn't abandon you, that it was your unwillingness to continue to trust him that brought you to this point. You can admit that you responded poorly to your suffering. You can ask him to help you to learn how to suffer victoriously. And I'll tell you this, that when you decide to go on trusting Jesus, he will restore your joy and your fruitfulness. The good soil represents people who produce a great harvest because they have perseverance. Let's look at the last part of verse 15. And they bear fruit with perseverance. The good soil is somebody who has long-term commitment. They are sticking with it until there is a harvest. They're sticking with it. They continue to respond to Jesus' guidance as the very first priority in their life. Now, it doesn't mean that you never stumble. It doesn't mean that you are always zealous. But it does mean that you've decided to give Jesus your whole life. Your mind, what you think on, your body, what you do with it, your possessions, all the stuff you have you've given over to God, your plans, your time, everything revolves around giving Jesus your whole life. And that knowing him better and influencing other people is the first priority in your life. It's the priority which everything else in your life revolves. There's a man in a book that I read who calls this a long obedience in the same direction. Think about that. 
where you've locked onto it and just daily you take the step, keep moving in the same direction of glorifying your Savior. It is that kind of obedience that will result in a truly meaningful and productive and deeply satisfying life. And you will be in awe at what God has done, how he has changed you, and how he has influenced other people through your life. This is the opposite of the third soil in verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures in this life and bring no fruit to maturity. This is a compromised person who perhaps truly believes in Jesus, in his historical being, what Jesus did. They could tell you about it. They would say that they have surrendered to him, but their life brings no fruit to maturity. Why? Because he or she let temporal matters choke their affections and energy. It's not that you forsake Jesus because of your suffering, like the first person, but that you simply let yourself be distracted by your career, which there's nothing wrong in having a career, or wealth, or your hobbies, or your entertainment, or your comfort. This is insidious. It is both subtle, because there's nothing in itself wrong with those things. It's subtle, and it is also gradual. It's not usually a specific decision, but it's just a series of small decisions where you begin to find yourself drifting away, and you neglect your spiritual life, and you pursue these things instead. Especially in affluent America, this is a particular temptation. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this temptation often. When I am unhappy, I turn to these things first rather than God. It's not easy to avoid this trap, but I see it as that, a trap, something to be fought against, something to be weeded out, realizing that it will waste my life if I give in to it. And what's tragic to me is that not so many Americans struggle with this, but that they don't struggle. They give in, they pursue, and they pass it on to their children. And what happens, they become impotent to attract anybody to Jesus Christ because they see the hollowness of it. What about you? Is this your current response to Jesus? You can change this. You don't have to keep letting the weeds and the thorns and the pleasures to choke out your spiritual life. These are the things that prevent us from becoming fruitful Christians. Not just Christians who bear the fruit of the Spirit, but people who attract other people to Jesus Christ. You can admit that you have been spiritually compromised and give yourself wholly to him. Ask him to remove whatever weeds he sees. You may have to get brutal. Take something that is okay in itself and crucify it. You can start feeding your spiritual life by re-engaging with his people getting back in the word. You can commit yourself to follow him wherever he leads you, and he will revitalize you and lead you back into the path of life. What do you want your Christian life to be five years from now? More of the same or spiritually fruitful? And as you walk out, what are you going to do that will move you toward that harvest? 
But the seed in the good earth, these are the good hearts who seize the word and hold on no matter what, sticking with it until there is a harvest. In other words, believers, brothers and sisters, persevere. Let's pray. Lord, I think about the uh, songwriter who said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And the most terrifying thing is, is that writer did drift away. Lord, I think you give us these things as warnings, both as telling us what would happen if we drift away, but also, as Pastor Dan pointed out once, the means by which you prevent us from doing so. So I ask now that many people here would be warned that they would see indicators that they are not the kind of good soil that you would desire to have, but that these things are sapping away their spiritual vitality. Lord, I know that in my life so often I'll find myself in a place of joylessness where I just say, what is going on here? And most often it's because I'm either being fickle or compromised. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would work in the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that we would search our hearts, that we would be radical if we have to. And I pray that you would restore many of us to that place of spiritual fruitfulness, Father, where we would look back and just marvel at the way that you have changed us, and we would just look back and shake our heads at the lives that have been influenced because of our lives. Lord, and if we do come to that point, we will be sure to give you all the glory. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his words. And it's in his name that we pray.